This is episode 618 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. On today's podcast, I have a special interview with the dynamic duo of preparedness, Dr. Joe and Amy Alton, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy of doomandbloom.net. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is usually an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website. But from time to time, I interview members of the preparedness community who can bring a ton of value and information to your preparedness. Links for this podcast can be found in the show notes or on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, this episode is sponsored by the exclusive Prepper Website email group, which allows you to communicate with other preppers right from your email. You don't have to worry about your every link, click, or word being tracked by social media. This email group resides on the same servers as Prepper Website. So for more information, you can visit PrepperWebsite.net or you can click the link in the show notes. Well, everyone, I'm very excited to be able to share this podcast interview with you. Uh, It's always a great treat to have Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy on the podcast. They share so much medical preparedness information. And uh, just listening to this episode, you're going to find a lot of great, useful information. Now, when I contacted them about this episode, I really wanted to focus on an individual first aid kit, vehicle kits, and your home first aid kits. But it went beyond that. And you'll see that here. Uh, We talk a little bit about preparedness and medical preparedness for the here and now, but also we touch on medical preparedness for times when uh, there is no medical professional. The hospitals aren't around when we're, if we ever have that off-grid situation. So, this, like I said, this is going to be a great treat. A lot of great information. There was uh, questions from the email group that they uh, some some of the members provided. So I got to ask some of those questions as well. So just a lot of great information. So let's go ahead and not wait any longer. Let's jump into this interview with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Dr. Joe Alton and Nurse Amy of doomandbloom.net. All right. I am so happy to have Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy on the podcast. Uh, two of my favorite people in preparedness, Dr. Bones and Joe, Dr. Joe Alton. It's so hard for me to say Dr. Joe Alton, but Dr. Bones, how are you doing? Nurse Amy, how are you doing? We're doing great, Todd. It's so wonderful to be on your show again. We really appreciate your having us. Awesome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, I brought you in or, or to the podcast because I wanted to talk about first aid kits. But before we do that, we had some really big news. We had the Iran thing go off, you know, sending missiles. And, you know, th- there nothing really big happened or has come about it, at least as of yet. But I wanted to just really quick ask you, what was going through your mind when you first heard that that was going on? And, you know, how did you, how did you respond that they were hitting, you know, U.S. bases in Iraq? Well, I knew that something was going to happen after we killed their general, but I guess what went through my mind is how well protected are our soldiers at their bases? What kind of protection is necessary against missiles like that? Uh, do our, all our soldiers live in underground bunkers? Because that's actually what they would need. So, I don't know. When I heard there were no casualties, I let out a sigh of relief, and you did too, Amy. And I, I thought that, the, honestly, the, the Iranians would do exactly what they did, though, and deny that they were trying to kill Americans. When I heard about the commercial plane being shot down then, I wondered 
if the Iranians thought it was a U.S. bomber or whether the whole Iranian military was having a collective seizure. <laughs> well, I have to say, when I first heard that we, we had actually received some hits, I said, that's it, World War III. It was my first response. And then I realized after they said, well, there haven't been any casualties, that no, they were just trying to save face to their people. They're going to actually tell their people that they killed Americans, which is what they did because they can control the media and the narrative there. Sure. <laughs> sort of like some of our media here. <laughs> um, and then I saw a little later on that the airplane had been hit. And I looked at Joe and I said, you know what? Somebody went rogue. Somebody got carried away, maybe got a little drunk after they sent some missiles over to our air bases and, you know, had a little celebration and somebody pushed a button they shouldn't have pushed because they were just a little too excited. I, th I think that's what happened. And I think that person probably doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> well, and you know, that's pretty sad because there should be, and I mean, I'm not a radar expert. I don't know. I really, I don't know anything about radar, but there's got to be some differences between civilian aircraft and military aircraft. And if you have a military, which Iran's supposed to have a pretty decent military. I mean, of course, they don't compare to us, but they're supposed to have a, a pretty decent military. If you can't tell the difference, I, I saw somebody on Twitter post, if, if you can't tell the difference, if you can't you know, control these regular missiles, why would we want them to have nuclear missiles and nuclear capabilities you know, to, to do something like this? So I feel really bad for the families who you know, lost loved ones on that plane uh, you know, I, we will never know the situation of, of how and why and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're seeing some of it in the, in the media, but we know that there was a, they were at least trying to cover up a lot of it. Um, I was reading that the, the area was bulldozed over. I, mean, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, communications out there that, that aren't true. But I was very glad, just like you, that it didn't go any further. My initial reaction was, oh, oh here we are. I was waiting for Trump's response and, and what we were going to do there. And to me, that was going to dictate, I guess, you know, where, where we went from there. The, the email group, you know, I posted it onto our email group that we have. And they, uh, you know, people were like, hey, I, I'm thinking about buying some extra food. I'm thinking about this. You know, I'm making sure that my gas tank is filled up. And, and so it, it goes back to... One of the things that I always say is preppers should be paying attention to what's going on and keeping your eyes open. And this is one of those things where you keep your eyes open and you see where it's going. A lot of the public would be watching, okay, what's going to be the U.S. response? I think a lot of preppers are thinking, okay, do I need to make a run to the store and top off? So I'm glad nothing came of it. But, you know, it's one of those things I think we just need to stay on top of it. Yeah, I agree. I, I will say that one of the first responses, I besides saying, hey, we just started World War III, was that, or World War III started, not we started it, that they started it because now they're hitting us. I looked at Joe and I also said, hey, maybe we should go top off our tank. That was one of the first things I said to him, remember? Yes. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, we talked also our field hospitals can handle. I mean, we're talking about sort of big things like how long does it take to get a bomb victim to the nearest functioning U.S. medical facility in, in, in Iraq, mm -hmm. when we were talking about Iraq. Yep. And, but at home, 
obviously it's, you know, how do you weather the, the mad rush to get supplies? It's like, uh, I guess, a, an oncoming hurricane, if you think about it. I, I just want to say one thing is that we were monitoring Twitter, we came across a pretty extraordinary video, and I just, it gives you an idea of what we're dealing with here. And the video showed the Ayatollah Khamenei sitting on a chair high above the Iranian parliament, it almost looks like a throne. And this was, according to the video, at, after the killing of this General Soleimani. Uh, and the Ayatollah had papers in his hand. He was clearly agitated. He was talking. He was slapping the papers in his hand. Then he started slapping his knee. And then he seemed to lose it completely. He was throwing the papers. He pulled off his own turban. And then get this. He started repeatedly slapping his, himself on the head with both hands. I mean, he actually had guards that had to subdue him physically while other people, uh, other guards, I guess, pointed at the audience and were patting their heads like everybody else should do the same so the Ayatollah wouldn't seem right. so Every, nuts. Everyone act the same crazy way that this guy's acting right. so he doesn't look out of place. So I just want to... That was a wild video. Now, it could have been Photoshopped or something. Who knows? But it did how. look authentic because it was pixelated. I mean, this is who we're dealing with. The guy's a complete lunatic. And if this guy really has the support of the Iranian people, there's no doubt that once they get their nuclear weapons, they're going to use them because it's inevitable with this maniac at the helm. I mean, people need to get ready for that. I mean, by the way, even with an intact Iran deal, even if we had stated it, the Iranians would have their bomb in four to five years, which is probably when they would have developed it anyway. So it just galls me a little bit to know that we gave them the money for it, whether it was theirs to begin with or not. It, it's definitely, again, you're, you're right. There's so many things that go into it, so many things that preppers need to uh, be aware of. And that's one of those things where we can all, and man, we, we can go in and we can, we can start talking and not even talk about first aid kits, right? right. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we could, we could pick this apart for years. <laughs> but it goes back to that prepper fatigue, you know, because I was, I was seeing prepper groups and different people talk about it and, uh, you know, this, this quick, you know, rise to, to hey, you know, uh, this level of preparedness and then it kind of all fizzled out. And I can kind of understand where people kind of, get you know that prepper fatigue but that doesn't mean that we we don't stay aware of what's going on i mean we need to be responsible for our families and making good decisions and part of that is dealing with the stuff that might be a little uncomfortable oh yeah these are conversations that have to be had <laughs> all right so let's go ahead and jump into our first aid kits because that's what i really wanted to talk to you about and the reason i e i first emailed you and i had this idea is so People know in my department, you know, I, I've been there for about three or four years and slowly I let people know that I'm into preparedness and, and they, 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 they get to know me that way. But part of it was they would ask me for things. So someone would say, hey, does anyone have a, uh, a finger, fingernail clippers, right? And so I'm like, well, yeah, I have one in my urban, my urban Altoids kit right here in my bag. And like, well, wow, Todd, you have, you know, you have that. Somebody asked me for a file the other day. So all these women, they're asking all these women, does anyone have a file? Nobody has a file. I'm like, I didn't want to say anything, but I'm like, mm, you know, I kind of have a file. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have one in my little urban Altoid kit. And they're like, Todd, you have everything. My boss came to me the other day and she was like, Todd, do you have a Band-Aid? I know you have everything. Do you have a Band-Aid? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And so I opened up the bottom drawer and I had a, a little kit that I had purchased um, back in the day. 
And so I re- I'd never really even opened it, but, you know, drilled down to the Band-Aids. And then later on, she came. I need another Band-Aid. So, man, you, you just have everything. You're always prepared. And so as I was looking at that little kit, I'm like, man, you know, I bet I can have other things. I've really never thought about the extra things that I should have. And so I started thinking about you guys. And I know that y'all have kits on your websites and you are the, the people to ask if there's anybody in preparedness about medical preparedness and first aid. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit about beefing up our first aid kits and what we can do with the, you know, the basic first aid kits that we have and then add to that. And so if I can ask you that first question, we'll go ahead and jump into that is when we think about first aid kits and their purpose, what should our mindset be in regards to what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to accomplish? Why do we have, why do we even have first aid kits? Well, I'll tell you, we always have first aid kits because you never know what's going to happen in terms of injuries or or illness. Most for the most part, it's just for minor boo-boos and trauma, things like that. You know, you hit your nail with a hat, your, your, your finger with the, with a hammer instead of the nail. But from a mindset standpoint, we have to have a different mindset than what we ordinarily have. And your, your kit, for example, is good for minor things, but sometimes things aren't so minor. And also, you know, from our mind, our mindset is that whatever's going to happen to us medically, it's always going to be minor. But in, and even in the worst situation, we can do first aid and the EMTs are going to come and everything is going to be fine. You know, the ambulance will take you to the hospital. That's, that's our normal mindset as civilians. You do what we can while we're waiting for the ambulance to arrive. But what if the ambulance isn't available or if it's heading in the other direction because of some major natural or man-made disaster? How about if an epidemic fills the hospitals and the ambulance has nowhere to go? That's an important thing to think about it. I mean, People in the preparedness community are oftentimes concerned about some possible major event or some long-term event that can take away modern medicine. Your kit has to be able to deal with more than just the boo-boo and more than just the first five minutes of a medical emergency. A kit that is meant for the preparedness community, for people that are concerned about some event that's other than everyday you know, I skin my knee, things like that, has to have the quantity and variety of supplies that would allow you to function from the point of injury, which is what your kid has and what everybody else's kid has, to something different, to the point of full recovery. And that, when you're talking about a broken bone or uh, an open wound, well, that's an entirely different mindset and an entirely different set of skills than even what, let's say, an EMT might have. So when you're, what you're saying, is it possible to have that in our, so the three different kind of kits that I wanted to talk about were an individual first aid kit, a vehicle kit, and a home kit. So can you have that in every kit? Is that reasonable to have in every kit to move beyond just your, your regular boo-boos? Um, I don't think so if you're talking about space limitations. Mm. So say your individual kit, let's say some, you're somebody who, like my daughter, who lives in Brooklyn and has to travel into Manhattan on a train every day. And she takes a little backpack, but she doesn't want to have a huge backpack because that's just going to have unwarranted attention towards it. Um, she needs something very small. 
you know, something that might only be, you know, four inches by three inches by a couple of inches, something real small, almost that would fit into a back um, pants pocket. Your Altoid kit. Right, or or the Altoid kit size. So I think size limitation and weight are probably the two biggest um, limitations on how you're going to be able to make yourself prepared. So you have to think of those, um, how you travel. If you get into a car every day and you drive to work, you might be able to have something a little bigger because you're throwing it on the side seat and you may be just going up a few steps to work. So I, I think that is some of the biggest things that you have to think about. You know, in normal times, uh, the kit that you have or, you know, your basic 19 buck uh, IFAC from Bass Pro, I mean, that's going to help, but it's just going to be useful for boo-boos, maybe common trail injuries. If you're on the trail, you get a blister. But, you know, if there's no ambulance, there's no hospital, your IFAC, what every non-medic member of your group should carry, has to ramp up at supplies. And they need to add things like tourniquets, hemostatic dressings like quick clots, C-locks, chitazam, and uh, maybe even chest seals and decompression needles. I mean, if if your people are properly equipped, if each person has a reasonable IFAC, the medic will be able to use some of those supplies before diving into his or her larger, more comprehensive pack. Or better yet, if the medic isn't around, it allows you to actually help yourself. And that's basically what they're, they're trying to do is trying to give you the uh, ability in the, mil- in the military, what they're trying to do is give you the ability to possibly slow down bleeding until uh, the medical folk uh, arrive and you can be evacuated. Okay, well, good. So you brought up the individual first aid kit. Um, let's talk a little bit of what someone who has uh, a small kit and maybe not the Altoid kit. I have a little Altoid, a medical, I call it a boo-boo kit. And uh, that is one of the articles that gets, you know, a lot of attention on over at Ed That Matters. But I have, you know, bigger individual first aid kits as well. So what kinds of items can someone add to an individual first aid kit that would really beef it up from your regular kind of, you know, like what you said, your 1999 at Bass Pro Shop, what kinds of things can they do to beef that up? And I know, you know, knowing and understanding that space is limited, but maybe things that they can kind of pack in there or maybe throw some of the junk that's in the kit that they get out and add some of the other things, what kind of items and even maybe what kind of meds should we add to those individual first aid kits to beef them up? Well, you'd be doing yourself a favor by buying more supplies than you have now. You don't have, I can tell you right now that you don't have enough dressings, enough bandages, enough tourniquets, enough splints, burn supplies, just about everything else. Because from the standpoint of the preparedness community, you were talking about a longer longer term and perhaps a larger number of people that you have to deal with. But you can really improve your chances of survival if you're knocked off the grid by having items that are going to help you deal with your environment, for example, keeping you warm or keeping you cool, plus materials to disinfect water. This is something that people don't think about as a medical item, but it believe me, it really is. Okay, so let me just t- be specific about this. So to keep warm, if you're adding to an individual kit, um, something maybe like a Mylar blanket. So we're still talking about lightweight and small. Again, those are good things when you have an individual kit. How about hand warmers? And then hand warmers would or- be nice. Uh, those are very lightweight, very small actually, and you can activate those. <clears throat> um, and then talking about a uh, water disinfectant, uh, 
the AquaTabs are really small. They're in a tiny little bottle and they're teeny tiny little pills that go into whatever water you're trying to help sanitize. So very lightweight, very small. So we're trying to keep keep the limit on those sizes. A tourniquet, because you did mention a tourniquet, uh, would be good, but a lightweight one would either be a SWAT, which is nice and stretchy and, and multi-purpose. It works as an ACE bandage. It works as a tourniquet. It works as a pressure dressing. It will hold on gauze. I mean, it's just an amazing, and that's SWAT. SWAT comes in an orange or even black, but I like the orange better. Again, lightweight and small. So right. speaking of lightweight, lightweight and, and small. Speaking of lightweight and small, I want to go back to water disinfection. Okay. That is super, super important. Uh, that if you just think back to the Civil War, dehydration due to illness or infection, which was usually a, some kind of intestinal thing, killed many more soldiers than bullets or shrapnel. That's so right. you need to have, uh, you can have aqua tabs, you can have a mini Sawyer uh, water filter, you yep, can have a life store. Amy has all of these items uh, at her store at store.dumabloom.net. Yeah, so. that, that mini Sawyer is actually pretty interesting because, <clears throat> again, very, extremely lightweight and small, filters 100,000 gallons. Um, the filter itself is about five or six inches um, and maybe a, a three quarters to an inch wide at the most. Very tiny, very lightweight. Again, we're looking for small and lightweight items to add to individual kits. These are not things that you're going to be, you know, carrying necessarily on your back, but maybe on your hip, on a belt, in a pocket. You want to keep it very small. Now, one other thing that will save lives off the grid is a good supply of antibiotics. If you have antibiotics, you will be able to deal or nip a lot of infections in the bud that otherwise could spread to the body, the entire body, you can cause sepsis or septicemia, and uh, basically an infection throughout the entire body and, and actually kill you. And there are many antibiotics available in the pet industry, specifically fish and bird antibiotics, that are identical to human drugs. I don't mean similar, I mean identical, made in the same batch, and just put in a differently labeled container. I, I was the first physician to write about these years and years ago, and you can find tons of information on these at our website, uh, or in our new book, uh, Alms Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Now, you have to make sure that if you are concerned about a long-term event, that you have the right supplies for that. Now, mm -hmm. of course, a lot of if you a few days without power, you need just be your basic materials, you know, medical medical first aid materials. But if you had a long-term event, you might actually have to start considering adding dental supplies to your kits. I mean, many people feel they're medically prepared. But in the long term, you're not medically prepared unless you're dentally prepared as well. And like I said, I'm not talking about a few days without power during a storm. I mean, if that's your concern, you don't need a dental kit. But if you're concerned about a real long-term off-grid event, dental supplies become very important. In Vietnam, 50% of the sick call patients were there because of some kind of dental issue. And uh, you can find a good... Hey, Joe, are you there? I lost you a little bit. Yeah, I'm here. Hey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Technical <laughs> difficulties. It happens. It happens. It happens. No it's, it's still amazing that we can, I can be in Houston and you can be where you are in Florida and we can have this great conversation. Uh, but, you know, sometimes these things happen. So 
Uh, you were talking about Vietnam and, and or the dentistry and the need for to have dental supplies, and you were talking about Vietnam. So uh, can you pick it up from there? Yeah, I think I had mentioned that uh, during the Vietnam War, medics uh, would have a daily sick call, and the, the patients that showed up at sick, sick call, about 50% of them were there not for medical reasons, but for dental reasons. So that's why it's so important for you to have a dental kit. Now, I'm not talking about a few days without power during a storm. If that's your concern, you don't need a dental kit. But if you're concerned about a real, long-term, knock-you-off-the-grid event, dental supplies become very, very important. And I was saying that you can find a good off-grid dental kit at our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Go there, not necessarily, you don't have to, I don't care whether you buy our dental kits or anything like that, but we have an entire list of contents of dental materials that would be very, very important in times of trouble. So a good dental kit can be found at store.doomandbloom.net. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't care if you buy any of our materials, just consider having a good kit that has dental supplies as well as medical supplies. Absolutely. And I just want to mention that um, our store also, the, the store.doomandbloom.net. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Uh, just a sound <laughs> um, has lists of what you should put into kits. And we've gone over these lists for several years. The store has been up for nine years and we've gotten input from many, many, many different professions, uh, anywhere from firefighters and EMTs to trauma nurses, to emergency room doctors, to uh, military personnel, uh, police officers. So many people have had their input. They've, reviewed the kits, they've looked at them, they've given me suggestions, and I always listen because there are people who, you know, just have different experiences than us. And we've put all that into the list. So please feel free if you've got an individual kit to go on the store to look at a kit that's similar to yours and look and see what I put in it. There might be something that you didn't think about. Maybe the raw honey or some waterproof matches. Or again, we talked about the Mylar blanket. So just little things that might, you know, uh, prep up your your kit a little bit and make it just a, a little bit better and have a little more things that you can use it for. So take a look. Feel free to use that information and research and uh, history that we have with that with other people. Well, and, and I know you know Joe said you don't have to buy from us, but if you want that, just do it. You, you if you want to do it yourself, okay. You're saying do the list, but I know that y'all have quality products in your in your kits you're not looking to you know cut corners there so if anyone wanted to buy a kit that was really well put together then they know that they're going to get good stuff when they purchase your kits so i just well, want to i appreciate that well, we appreciate that's very that. kind we, of you and, uh, and i do only buy name brand and high quality um, items i don't want anyone to have a failure when they're using something because it was a knockoff and and they didn't know it Yep, exactly. So that we, we do appreciate that. That's important. I want to go back to the dentistry though. So let's say we have a dentist kit, whatever that might look like. What, what do we do with it? How do we know what we need to do with that? Where, you know, it's like, okay, we have this gear and preppers are known for that is buying gear, putting it in a closet. And then what do you do with it? Not trying it out. And I'm not saying we need to try our dentist kit out. You definitely don't want to do that. <laughs> but but, no practicing. <laughs> but what, you know, where do you go from that? You know, when it comes to maybe a, a situation where you can't get to a medical professional. 
Well, I'll tell you, we are not just suppliers of items, but basically we supply a lot of education as well. And so if you look at our third edition of our survival medicine handbook, we have an entire section devoted on uh, dental procedures for different things, uh, toothache, uh, knock, teeth that are knocked out or teeth that are broken, things like that. And we even go into as much detail as where you stand if you have to extract the tooth from the left side as opposed to the right side, how you position the patient and things like that. Also, every one of our dental kits comes with a free copy of a book called Where There Is No Dentist. So not only do we have it in our own book, but we also have it in another book that talks about off-grid dentistry uh, called Where There Is No Dentist. So you would get that with with your dental kit. So we, and, and of course you could always buy just the book yourself if you so, if you so desire. But we make sure that we give you as much education as possible. Does it, is it the equivalent of going to dental school? No, <laughs> but it is certainly a good start to get a fund of knowledge that might help you help others in times of trouble. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking about a time I've been very lucky with my teeth. Um, I haven't had a lot of problems. I've had friends who seem like they were always at the dentist. They just, I don't know, maybe it's, it's genetics, whatever. They just, and you know, they had bad teeth, but there was a time where I did have uh, a, a, the need for a root canal and I had an infection and it was bad and I was taking antibiotics and I was taking things for pain. And man, it was, it was one of those things that, you know, I know people that might be able to have some medical knowledge and you can have kits and stuff like that, but oh my gosh, you know, you want to have some option at least for dentistry or having, the, you know, some option at least to deal with things when you're having a situation like that. And for the most part, I know I've done, I've read enough of your articles over the years that if we were really grid down and there were, you know, no dentists around, a lot of the times before modern dentistry, it was just pulling the tooth and, you know, trying to get rid of that infection. So, I mean, at the very least, you would want that option to be able to do that. And I'm assuming a kit would have that ability. Am I oh, correct yeah. on that? Okay. Absolutely. You need, to, and, and you have to remember that it's not just one extractor. There are extractors for every type of teeth, uh, tooth. So we have uh, extractors for teeth that have one root. Then we have extractors for teeth that have two roots. Like they're, let's say a bicuspid would have one root. A premolar would may have two roots. A molar might have three roots. So we have... Uh, various extractors for various types of teeth. Now also, the important thing to know is that in survival, the work efficiency of your people to be able to do the activities of daily survival is very, very important. If you've had a toothache, you know how that affects your work efficiency. I mean, you can only think about the pain that you're having in your tooth. As a matter of fact, you think about ways that you can get that tooth out, honestly, so that you can you know, get over it. It's a, it's a tough thing. The root canal is fine in normal times. It's great, a great thing to have and saves the tooth. But in truth, 90% of dental emergencies will be dealt with by extraction if you're knocked off the grid. All right. So that's good. And we weren't even talking about dentist kits, but this is good information. I think a lot of people don't even, they don't even think about something like that, you know, because it's just so, you know, people don't go to the dentist every every single month they go, you know, to get cleanings or if they have an emergency and sometimes it's easy to put that to the side. 
So uh, that's good that we, we were able to bring this up. Let's talk a little bit about vehicle first aid kits and uh, what we can do to beef those up. You know, definitely there's, you know, you have a little bit more room, like Amy, you were talking about room and space. That's going to be one of the concerns. But in a vehicle, you have a little bit more room, uh, a little bit more space to, to put kinds of, you know, to put items and, and things. So what would you suggest to beef up a vehicle kit what kinds of items can we put in there? You know, I've written about this a number of times on our website at doomaboom.net. And the vehicle itself becomes a medical item in this situation. It can serve as a shelter against cold to prevent hypothermia. It can be a way to cool off in the heat. Even if the vehicle isn't functioning, it can still serve as a source of shade. And the interesting thing is that what's in your medical kit doesn't have to change much, but the quantity of stuff increases, of, of each of your items increases. The, the weather merits some additions, by the way, that you wouldn't otherwise carry, let's say, on a hike. You're more likely to have problems, obviously, in the winter. Winter conditions don't just affect people, they affect cars as well. So your vehicles will be doing double duty in extreme cold. They need to be winterized. You have to switch to a lighter viscosity oil, change the snow tires, choose the right antifreeze, uh, and you should never allow your gas tank to be less than about half full. But there are a number of items, we're talking about medicine, those are actually medical items in that they'll prevent you from winding up getting hypothermia or maybe hyperthermia in, in bad weather. Uh, now there are a number of items that you should keep in your vehicle in winter, and the funny thing is that some aren't standard medical supplies, but they also help prevent and maybe even treat medical issues. You need to have wool blankets. Well, I just want to say one thing so about some of these tools is it's more for getting your car up and running and for alerting people that you're having an emergency. Um, if you can't do that, you might end up dehydrated or sick, or if you're injured, actually end up getting worse. So, you know, some of these car items are really to just get you out of the situation. So the thing is, is that, you need to be able to stay warm even if you're wet. So wool blankets are very good. They stay warm even when wet. Spare sets of dry clothes, socks, hats, mittens, uh, a fire starter or lighter or something that will allow you to manufacture heat and a metal cup maybe or a thermos to melt snow, rehydrate soup. You should have some food and uh, uh, water, non-perishable food and water items in your car. Candles, flashlights, uh, batteries that will keep the battery separate or in backwards until you need them. A good multi-tool, weatherman type stuff. Uh, a large combination tool like a foldable shovel to see if you can dig your way out of, let's say, a situation where your car is stuck. Some sand, rock salt, and plastic containers, a tow chain, a rope, flares, jumper cables. Uh, a good tarp would be very useful, especially one that has bright colors that would be more visible and aid rescue in situations where you can be rescued. A noisemaker to make noise to help you with that as well. Uh, and of course, your cell phone and charger. A first aid kit, you should have in addition to a good supply of food and water uh, and more than you can carry yourself. Again, the quantity, you should need to have energy bars, MREs, dehydrated soups, things like that. You will need uh, for hygiene purposes, a good supply of baby wipes, for example, and what we mentioned before, hand warmers or other instant heat packs, they're activated usually by shaking or breaking them. They, they'll last for hours, and in the summer, disposable shake and break cold packs are also a good idea to have available. And of course, whatever medications that you need to take on a regular basis. 
so this is interesting because this is really like a mindset shift because we're not just talking about the, the specific first aid kit that we can go buy and put underneath our, you know, our seat or in the back somewhere. Um, you're saying that your vehicle kit total, you know, cause you, you talked about wool blankets, you talked about shovels, you talk, you, you're saying that all of that really has to deal with your, your health and your safety. So you really should look at not only your first aid kit, but, everything that you have in your vehicle that can help you to survive a certain situation that you might find yourself in, that, 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 that really plays into part in your health and in your safety. And you really need to consider that as being part of your first aid kit. Exactly. you you basically, the items that I just mentioned are going to serve a medical purpose by preventing you from dying from, let's say hypothermia. All right. That's, that's, that's a great mind shift to have that maybe a lot of people don't really consider um, because, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have thrown their little first aid kits underneath their, their seats, just like I have. And they don't consider all the rest of it as being just, they look at it as an emergency situation, but not as health and safety. Now let's say that you have, you, you have a, something more than a fender bender, and, you know, you need to uh, try to provide some first aid to people. Uh, maybe, maybe your loved ones in your, in your vehicle, maybe there's somebody there with you or, or in another vehicle. Are there some items, specific items maybe that we can put in our vehicle kit that will beef them up from what you would normally buy? Sure. A lot of stuff that we've talked about already, tourniquet, I definitely want you to have tourniquets. I want you to have more than one tourniquet. Two tourniquets would be good because sometimes one tourniquet just isn't enough and you have to place one just above the first, uh, second one just above the first. So two tourniquets at least. I want you to have uh, dressing, some kind of barrier, hopefully, you know, preferably a clean barrier or a sterile barrier that you can you can apply direct pressure to a bleeding wound, uh, a splint. If you were out, if, if your car crashed and you were in a remote area, you would need to have some way to splint a wound so that you can travel if you actually if you actually had to, way, some way to transport uh, an individual. Even rope can be made into a stretcher that you can carry if you have enough people helping you. So, I mean, there are a lot of different things. Hemostatic dressings like sea uh, locks or quick clot or um, a chitosam. Either of these, uh, any of these are very useful and are very effective in stopping even arterial bleeding. So these are things that you'd likely, likely come across if you came across a car accident. You'd have to see somebody bleeding, somebody with broken bones. Of course, if the amb ambulance is five minutes away, your main issue is going to be to stop the bleeding to give the ambulance time to get there. Ambulance isn't coming. You need lots of dressings. You need splints. You need a way to transport. So these are the things to think about in that circumstance. Right. Another important thing is, you know, airway. So you might want to carry CPR masks. If you have the training, make sure you have an NPA, a nasal pharyngeal airway, but you have to have training before you go sticking a tube down someone's nose. There's when to do it, when not to do it, and there's techniques, and these have to be trained. You can't just go right. sticking a tube into someone's nose because, oh, gee, they're not breathing. It's not um, rocket science, but, but it's something you should learn about. Yeah, you always have a fun have, knowledge. Have, have, get, get a training. <laughs> get a course, get a class, do, do training for that before you 
uh, perform that, but airway, uh, know how to position someone's chin and head to help increase their airway. Um, there are certain positions, depending on whether the patient is sitting in the car or laying on the ground. Right, recovery positions. Recovery positions, and, and exactly. Shock positions. Not hard to learn, but could save someone's life. And, of course, no CPR. Would uh, the regular Red Cross first aid uh, training that anyone can get, you know, in their city probably, is that, would it, I mean, would that cover that? Yes, it, it's going to cover the, the CPR. Bleed, stop the bleed courses are even better. For right, that. you have you have two different things we're talking about. So yes, there are CPR courses through Red Cross, and then there's stop the bleed courses, which right. are free throughout the country. Um, short regulated classes teach you the basic, um, you know, how to put the tourniquet, right. how to do the hemostatic gauze, right? We're how to position the patient. So two different things, but those are two different types of training that everyone should have on board for, for today. Right. You never we, know when you get in that car or walk to the park what you're going to find. We're oftentimes asked to do Stop the Bleed classes. We did a webinar for PrepperNet uh, uh, a while ago on that. and a couple uh, months. Yeah, and it really was well received. So uh, this is stuff that uh, needs, needs to be learned if you don't know it already. Awesome. Awesome. Important stuff because when we talk about preparedness, yeah, I've been looking at just looking at older articles and things that come up in search engines of what people think about preppers. And they still, you know, the, the articles that were written years ago that talk about preppers are just waiting for doomsday and, and all of that stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm really trying to change the mindset of that, that it is you prepare because things happen every single day. And people will go to a you know Red Cross first aid CPR, stop the bleeding class, because they realize how important that is. And that's being prepared. And that's just, you know, that's just the basics of it. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, it's just the wording, it's the semantics of it. But I'm glad that you said that everybody should have that. And a lot of people do look into that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I don't know, maybe I need to find a link where people can easily go and search Red Cross and, and find a training in their area in the show notes so people can, uh, can do that if they're interested. Well, just contact, just tell them to contact their local municipality. Most of the time they provide uh, Red Cross first aid courses through the local government. So that's not an unreasonable place to start. As and even as stop the bleed. Our city I've seen has had stop the bleed courses at right. the city hall. Right. All right. Well, that's good. Good information. So uh, this question came up in the email group. Um, I don't know if you if you realize I started a, an exclusive email group for people who wanted to sign up, and uh, it's like just ten dollars a month. But we have a nice little group that you know people might not want to go to social media, and people don't want to put things out there. But this is just you can do it through email. And so one of the questions talked about like if you have. Um, if you have items maybe in stored in a garage or you have items stored in your, in your vehicle in here in the Houston area and you experience that in Florida, it can get really hot. Is there any concern about first aid supplies? And I'm not necessarily talking about medicine and not food and, and water, but I'm talking about the bandages and, and things like that. Is there any concern about those being in extreme heat or extreme cold? 
Well, I will say that you're going to get the most benefit in terms of longevity for your medicines, especially your medicines. By Bandages, I think, can handle heat or cold pretty well. By your medicines, you need to store them in cool, dark, dry places, and that's regardless of the time of year. You, Your medicines will become less potent twice as fast in temperatures that are 90 degrees as opposed to temperatures that are 50 degrees. So the more cooler you can keep your medicines, the better, except you don't want to freeze them. Most medicines, unless it says so on the bottle, don't need to be frozen, and some drugs are very negatively affected by freezing. So it's very important to just be sure that you keep things dark, cool, dry, uh, but not necessarily frozen. I will say something about extreme, extreme heats, and we do have this issue in South Florida. If you have betadine, alcohol, any of those wipes that are in those paper squares, those are not very well sealed, believe it or not. And I will put an alcohol pad in my car, and about two days later, it is a nice paper towel. So it loses the moisture. So if you're going to store betadine, alcohol, uh, sting relief wipes, uh, anything, BZK wipes, anything that's in a wipe, put it in a Ziploc bag. I This is why I bag all the items in every kit. You might see the outside as a canvas bag, but I assure you, even in the family bags, the big ones, there are hundreds of little plastic bags making everything A, waterproof, and B, um, resisting um becoming paper towels or you know changing its consistency so all of the betadine alcohol bzk steam relief wipes are all individually bagged in plastic bags so take that use it as advice and bag all of your little stuff right. um, one other thing that might be a problem in heat um, band-aids are probably okay they don't have too much adhesive i think they're they're made to resist heat but tapes if you've got adhesive tape or something called cloth tape. You may have, and even your duct tape, it gets a little sticky and a little harder to unroll. Um, it's not gonna ruin it, but it might be a little more difficult after being exposed to a, a heat like that. Okay, makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you on the um, losing, uh, you know, those alcohol tabs doing that because I have experienced that, or alcohol <laughs> uh, cloth, you know, I've experienced that one. So let's move to a home kit. Now, of course, we're talking bigger, bigger area, a whole lot more space, you know, to put things. One of the things I remember reading in one of your articles, Dr. Bones, or maybe it was a podcast uh, that you had, you had mentioned is you're never going to have, and actually I think both of y'all have said this, you're never going to have enough first aid supplies. Whatever you think you have is going to go really, really quick. So, um, Definitely whatever you would have in a home first aid kit or a home medical kit um, needs to be amplified how many fold. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the, some of the things that people don't necessarily have in their home first aid kits that they really should add? Some of the things that we mentioned before were antibiotics. I think that's very important. Don't forget your dental supplies. Uh, and you just need to, as you said, uh, Todd, you need to have a lot more of what, what you, than what you think is the amount you need because there are lots of different folks that you're probably going to be taking care of in a true emergency that 
you don't you don't expect I mean people are going to show up at your door and they may have some skill that you need you can't just turn them away and or, or they come to you with an injury they know you happen to have medical supplies and maybe some a fund of knowledge about what to do for medical issues and you really need to have enough supplies to try to help as many people as possible now you have to remember that if you are well known in the area to have some medical knowledge and to have supplies and your willingness to help others well you become very important in that community and what happens is people will start expending their resources to protect you mm. that's a good point you become very valuable to the community and they're going to want to take care of you exactly all right well um i did I, have i just want to say one other thing I mean, when okay. you buy a first aid kit and and that's from anybody not just us but i don't want you to just take it put it on the top shelf of a closet and say well, okay i'm medically prepared now i need you to take the kits take our kits for example open them up take them apart put individual items where they make sense for you i mean these make sense. Where we put everything in our kits makes sense to us as a as medical professionals. We design these. Everything makes perfect sense to us in its location. But that doesn't mean that it's perfect for you. I mean, if you can, you want to make sure that you're acquainted with the use of each of these items. You can find them. Uh, a lot of demonstrations in our videos at uh, our YouTube channel, which is Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy YouTube channel. And so... If you're not sure about how to use tourniquets, if you're not sure how, uh, about hemostatic dressings or how to use splints or different ways that you can use a triangular bandage to help uh, uh, bandage wounds, well, you'll find demonstrations on exactly these points in our YouTube channel. So definitely check that out. Do not just put your kit on the top shelf of the closet and forget about it until some, somebody falls off a ladder or, or uh, the zombie apocalypse comes. <laughs> Very, very good point. Let's, so if someone was listening and they said, wow, I want five, five things that I can go buy right now to beef up my kit. Right. And so what would, what would Joe, what, what would Dr. Joe Alton, what would nurse Amy do uh, to go right now and buy five things that would beef up their kit if they were just regular preppers and not medical professionals? Right. Okay. Well, I'm, you have to think about what are the things you're most likely to encounter. I mean, you can expect to encounter in order of frequency, I would guess uh, minor issues like blisters and splinters and scrapes and things like that. Orthopedic injuries, that's going to be very common. Infection, that's very common. Burns, that's very common. And uh, of course, you want to be able to have the medicines or have the, the various items. So you need to have multiple tourniquets multiple tourniquets that's very very important you want to have enough burn gel or non-stick dressings that's very very important you want to of course uh, as i mentioned antibiotics to deal with infections but you need to have various splints more than a splint okay a lot of people have malleable splints and some of them can be uh, used more than once but you need to have several different kinds of splints and at least the malleable ones that you can just make a neck collar out of it, make a, a, a splint for a broken arm or a splint for a, a twisted ankle. 
These are things that are very, very important items to have in your kit. So make sure that you do that. And don't forget, as I mentioned, water disinfection, so important. That is really, really, really an important thing to have so that you can prevent dehydration. All right, I'm going to give a real quick list here. Uh, tourniquets, again, multiple. Sam splints mm -hmm. in different sizes. Uh, hemostatic dressings, gauzes, um, like Kytosam, Celox, and Quick Clot. Raw honey, absolutely in different packets, size, small packets, um, jars, plastic containers. I even have a, a bucket of five gallons of raw honey. So lots of raw honey. By the way, it never expires. Um, I have a, a video on. Uh, raw honey is medicine, I think is the name of it. So you can watch my YouTube video. And my fifth one would be more gauze. And again, I have a video on survival gauze. Uh, watch that and you'll learn all about the different gauzes and what they're used for. And we have a DVD on uh, or USB on guide to medical supplies. So that's, that's important. But with regards to gauze, you really would be surprised how much gauze it takes to sop up a good bleed. I mean, just it, take, if you really wanted to, Find that out. You basically take a two-liter bottle of, of Coca-Cola or some other drink or even just water, pour it on the floor, and see how much of your gauze it takes to actually sop oh, yeah. that up. You'll know, you'll have used up your entire quantity of gauze, I guarantee it, that you currently have stored just with that one event. Right. And a lot of these gauzes are not like bounty paper towels. It's not going to be as absorbent even as your paper towels. So you can use your paper towels to see the pile that you're using, but that's not equivalent because the gauze doesn't have that um, absorbency. Very good point. I, I, and I always remember that you say, say that and it's like, I, you can never have enough first aid items. So, exactly. so here's, here's the thing. I mean, you guys have access probably to, be able to purchase on, on a different level than we can. Um, going to a drugstore, going to Walgreens or CVS or something like that, uh, one of the things I've noticed is their stock does not go very far back. You, you might see, like, uh, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, the N95 mask, you might see two packages and that's it. So if someone was, there was a, a situation and people were going to the store to stock up, those, those, you know, those med medical supplies are going to be gone so, so quick. So where can, other than Amazon, where can someone go or can we go anywhere else, just a regular person who is trying to beef up their, their medical supplies, what, where can they go? Well, you can certainly go, go to us. We have uh, an entire warehouse full of medical supplies. So if you needed, for example, masks, we can provide masks in bulk. We, I, we can provide you cartons and crates and stuff of, of just about every item that you can imagine. Just contact us if you have specific need for a specific item at drbonespodcast at aol.com. And I'm pretty sure that we have the items that you are trying to accumulate in bulk. I would also say that if you're local and, and something's happened fast, uh, look for a wound supply care store. Um, usually they're stocked uh, floor to ceiling with uh, masses of gauze because people have chronic wounds and you know if you're the care person the relative that's taking care of this person um, you can go to these places and they have decent prices and it's on the stock it's it's on the shelf and they usually have a lot of it um, I have found some good stores as we we've traveled around because I always look for them I always want to go in because I'm 
crazy about medical supplies and see what the newest, latest, greatest um, supply is. A lot of times I just see the basics, you know, the ABD pads and the big multi-trauma dressings and the four by fours, which is just the size of a gauze, two by twos and nonstick. Um, but all of these things you can get, um, you know, off shelves in dire emergencies, probably not the best prices, but it depends on how much you buy. Uh, apparently the more you buy cases of the better price that you can get. Okay. All right. So good information there. So I do have a couple of other questions that came through the email group. Uh, one was, and when I saw this, uh, I, I chuckled a little bit because someone emailed right after that, followed up on that email and said, well, wait a minute, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, because you know, they have, they have videos uh, that talk about this, but one of the questions was about suture kits and where can we find suture kits and, and uh, how can we practice doing sutures and, and different things like that. Can you talk to that really quick? Absolutely, although I, I'm a little embarrassed to be mentioning our, or tooting our horn with regards <laughs> to it. You, you can learn at one of our classes. We do them on and off during the year in all sorts of different locations. If you can't go to one of these, check out our videos on suturing and stapling on YouTube at the, our DR Bones Nurse Amy channel as well. We also talk about wound care. And we have and, the DVD also that right. shows our whole class. We have a DVD. to your house. Exactly, right. So if you can't do that, and also we talk about it in great detail in our third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And for suture and staple kits, you can just go to our store at store.doomandbloom.net. We have, I think, some of the best suture and staple kits on the market. Now, at home, what I want you to do is get a pig's foot. You can, it, your local- you can order it, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you can find it at your local uh, grocery store. If you can't find it there, you a know, meat local market. Or, or an ethnic grocery store with, uh, or meat market would have it. It's the closest thing to human skin. If you can stitch a pig's foot, you can stitch anything else, believe me. And that's the thing. And I just want to say, if you're going to be the medic and you're concerned about a long-term event, make sure you get a good supply of sutures. I see people ordering one or two sutures when you really are going to need much more in a long-term scenario. So uh, just make sure you get enough of them. Absolutely. And those you want to keep for your storage. Uh, we do have boxes of uh, expired sutures. If you want to get a cheaper one to actually use a suture practice, to practice yeah. with, you don't have to do that though. Just get a half um, circle needle, sewing needle with mm -hmm. any kind of thread because really it's the hand motions that are going to teach you how to do this. Um, you can get a, a cheap pair of, of Kelly clamps or needle forceps um, in a lot of different places or sure. You know, in a pinch, use pliers. I don't care. Yeah. It's the hand motions. Really right. is the hand motion. So you're, I would want you to get the pig's foot, if you can, for the skin and texture. Um, cut a laceration in it and then follow our videos, which, again, are free on, on YouTube. If you can get the DVD for the suture class, I think it's only like $20 um, for the full class as if we're teaching it to you. And follow along. And once you learn those hand motions, when it comes to the emergency, when you have to do it, um, you'll understand by using right. those things that are, are not a big deal, that your half circle needle and your, your thread and your pliers, but you'll understand when you open up your sterile kit, what those are for and how you're going to use them. You need to practice, but it's not rocket science. Again, it's muscle memory, just knowing how to right. do it and practicing from time to time so right. that you keep up your skill. 
You know, what, what's funny when you were talking about muscle memory, um, I took one of your suturing classes one time when you came down, I think it was here in Houston, uh, when you did one of the, the, the preparedness shows down here, uh, or maybe it was the one in Dallas, but my dad was with me and my dad was a medic in the Navy during Vietnam. And so he was standing there, he could see what I was doing. And so it was funny because he was telling me, hey, do this, do this, do this. I mean, of course, y'all were walking around and helping me and, and helping everybody else. But it was funny because he was right there. He did so much of that, that it is like ingrained in his, in his memory of, of, you know, doing that. And he actually uh, was allowed because he was so good at it. He was allowed to do that on, uh, on more patients than, than most medics were able to do. Now, you say you, say you do the different uh, classes. How can someone find a class that you're doing if they wanted to take it from you in person? Well, basically, we try. We have a classes page on our website. When we have a class scheduled, we'll put it on there. And I have so, it in the store. The store is the best place to look. Oh, okay. Yeah. And actually, look at it. But at I don't have any scheduled right this second. I'm actually putting together our schedule. Yeah, 2020s uh, schedule. But it says, um, yeah, hands-on classes. Right. We uh, usually the start store. them in the spring. Yeah. All right. Perfect. That'll be good. So anybody who wants to wants to have a, a face-to-face can can do that. Um, so another question for those that can do intravenous fluids or can give intravenous fluids, can they obtain those supplies out there in, uh, in public? Can it just anyone get those supplies? Well, you know, there are starter kits that are available and they have, um, uh, a, the, they have the materials, but they have only a 250 or maybe 500 ba- CC bag of fluid. And that is obviously not enough to do much of anything. Maybe you could administer an intravenous antibiotic with it it by putting it in there. But otherwise, if you had somebody that's dehydrated, somebody who's lost a lot of blood, uh, you can't really do, you're not going to make a dent by replacing 250 cc's or even 500 cc's of fluid. Uh, IV fluids, however, are by prescription only, even normal saline, salt water, essentially, uh, the 3000 milliliter bags that you really need, you're just, and I mean, need in quantity are just not going to be readily available to the average person. No. You didn't mean 3,000. I think oh, did I say it, 1, sa- no, 1, it sounded like you said, but I think you okay. said the 1,000. Okay. 1,000 okay. cc's. The 1,000, <laughs> the thousand the milliliter bags, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but having said that, I, you know what? Just between you and me, you'll find a number of sites that will sell them. They're usually fly-by-night operations that close when there's a complaint sent to the state medical board about them. But I'll tell you, if you really are willing to do your research, they're probably out there, and they may not be the same one every time, but uh, you probably can find them at least for a period of time. Right, maybe even on eBay you never, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you never Again, know. they come in, they people get complaints, and then they're they're not there anymore. And, and just to, to, again, a disclaimer, you really need to know what you're doing here. This isn't just something that you can pick up and, and do. Um, so the person who asked that question was, hey, if you know how to do this, where can you obtain those supplies? Exactly. And, I, and, that, and that's why we answered it in this way, providing the information of where to find these. This is not something that you can just decide that you would like to do to somebody without training. Same thing I was talking about with the nasal pharyngeal airway. You can't just pick it up and go, oh, I'll stick this in somebody's nose. Everything will be fine. If you put the needle in the wrong area, or if you administer it too fast, 
or the wrong type of fluids. I mean, there are so many problems that can happen. It is not something that you can just do because you've watched a YouTube video. Joe Ashley has, Dr. Bones, actually has a video on an alternative for IV fluids, and it sounds crazy, but it works, and it's proven, and it's rectal rehydration, which is not going to change your heartbeat or cause a problem. It sounds unusual, but you can absorb fluids. If somebody is going to die, if you don't give them fluids, and you don't have IV, and you don't know how to do it, this is your life-saving technique. You gotta think outside the box. Uh, that particular method was used during World War I. Uh, before they had widespread uh, use of, of intravenous fluids, and uh, it, it works. It's good for some things, not for others. And the bottom line is if, if times are normal and if you, if, you need a, if you need a brain transplant and there's a brain <laughs> surgeon and a hospital nearby, Get there. don't try to do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, we always got to do those disclaimers and, and make sure that uh, you know, we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about first aid kits, you know, just survival settings every day, but yeah, survival, survival medical, that's different. That's a whole different. different. All right. I've got one more question. The last one, I promise. Uh, And really when this one came out, I was like, yeah, you know what? I've heard so much about this. So when should we really use hydrogen peroxide? There's been so much, you, you know, talk about don't use it. It kills off the good bacteria, whatever. You know, can you just talk to that very briefly? When should we use hydrogen peroxide if, if we should be using it at all? Uh, I, mean, I assume you're talking about using it on wounds. Hydrogen peroxide. Wait, wait, I just want to say something real quick. I, I want you guys to know that I grew up and my mother poured hydrogen peroxide on everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a nurse, not a medical professional. Uh, I got mercure chrome after, <laughs> after the hydrogen peroxide. So the first time she used hydrogen peroxide and then I got painted. If anyone remembers mercurochrome, yep, <laughs> yep. the staining that occurred. But I will say I never had an infected wound. So go, mom. <laughs> there you go. Well, well, hydrogen peroxide. If you find, look, go to the store. It's a three percent solution, a very mild antiseptic, used on the skin to prevent infection of minor cuts and scrapes and and maybe burns. Uh, it may also be used as a mouth rinse to help remove uh, mucus and uh, relieve maybe a minor mouth irritation from cold sores or or gum disease. Uh, Can you use it on open wounds? You're not supposed to use it on open wounds, uh, especially deep wounds, animal bites, or serious burns. And the reason why uh, hydrogen peroxide isn't really good for for regular wound care is because cells that are forming in in the healing process are what we call hydrophilic. That means they love a moist environment. And hydrogen peroxide actually dries these new cells out and it slows down healing if you use it on a regular basis. Now, hydrogen peroxide might prevent an infection. It doesn't cure infection. It might prevent an infection. And off the grid, you could use it as a first-time cleaning agent, just like you might pour whiskey on a wound. Right. But for regular wound care, hydrogen peroxide and and whiskey, neither of them (laughs) are helpful. They cause more irritation than healing and so there are better fluids to use after the first time exactly i mean with regards to there's not a lot of good bacteria i mean you have bacteria on the skin that lives on your skin um but if you had an open wound around that wound i I have no problem 
putting cyanide peroxide on the skin. I have problems with long-term use inside. Repeatedly. But, it, right. but if it was a one-time, that's all you had, and it was a one-time uh, first cleaning up of a, of a wound that just was incurred, well, then I, I would say you could use it if you really had Right. But you know what the best procedures are is really just aggressive water cleaning. Uh, if the water is potable, which means you've made it appropriate for drinking and no one's getting sick, Clean whatever it is that you've had to boil it or filter it or purify it, whatever it is that you have to do to your water source to make it drinkable, which now is the term potable, then you can use that for cleaning a wound. You have to be aggressive with the wound sometimes. If it got really dirty or gritty or you know, pieces of, of stuff in there. You're going to have to pick them out. You're going to have to scrub it. You want to be aggressive with your wound irrigation. Okay. When you've got that wound, it first happens. Wound irrigation will help flush out, aggressively flush out, you know, bacteria, things you can't see. Okay. Just because you look at something and it looks clean doesn't mean it's clean. So that's your best bet is just to use water. Then you're not hurting anything, but you're doing what you need to do, which is scrubbing and getting it out. It's like aggressively washing your hands. You don't want to just kind of rub soap on and then put it under the water. You wash your hands. You rub them together. You rub between your fingers. You might use a brush. You're, you're cleaning it. You might even have to wet some gauze and wipe in there to clean that wound. So water is fine if you can drink it. It doesn't have to be fancy formula of something. So don't worry about storing, you know, water irrigation and, and cleaning use or, or any fluids. You can use water. It's fine. Great. After that, my best thing, instead of triple antibiotic or bacitracin, would be this raw honey we talked about. They're now using it in hospitals on burns and wounds, long-term chronic wounds. Um, they call it Medi honey because it's irradiated to eliminate any possible botulism but raw honey in you know the home environment in long-term situations is going to be what I'm putting on all of our wounds. So that's what I'm going to use and, and cover it with lightly with some gauze. That's it. Simple, easy peasy. That's good to know. All right. Well, I appreciate you answering all those questions and the, the hydrogen peroxide thing. Uh, I mean, that again, that was, I always heard that just don't use it, don't use it. But uh, the information that you're sharing is really good and I really do appreciate it. So tell us a little bit, you've talked a lot about your YouTube channel uh, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes that goes directly to your YouTube channel. And I, I always talk about your survival medicine handbook. Uh, I, I always tell people, and if anybody goes to proper website, I, I put up, you know, in the red, the ad, I'm like, hey, this is the first book any prepper should have. But can you talk to us a little bit about your other book, uh, the antibiotic book, and, you know, whatever else you're doing out there. So people, you know, medical preparedness is one of those things that I think is very important. A little bit of knowledge goes a long way. So, you know, share with us a little bit, take a little bit of time to, to share with us what you're doing out there and how people can connect with you. Well, people can connect with us simply by emailing us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can join our survival medicine group at on Facebook at Survival Medicine Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Uh, our YouTube channel is Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel, and uh, Twitter's at Prepper Show. Twitter is called at Prepper Show. I do have an Instagram. <laughs> you just started that. Doom and Bloom Medical. So you can check us out there. Our book, uh, the Survival Medicine Handbook, is now in its almost 700-page 
third edition. It won the Book Excellence Award in the medical category uh, uh, when it uh, came out. Our antibiotic book is uh, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and that will tell you all about the fish and bird antibiotics I talk about uh, and uh, how to use them, when to use them, and how to recognize the infectious disease that they can cure. And then if anybody needs any kind of medical supplies, they can go to store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. Again, if you don't find a a bulk or or an item that you see in one of my kits I do have, just write to me. I have it. It's just I'm not trying to be Walmart with a thousand things for sale, but I have them. So let's say you you want to get sting relief wipes from me or small bottles of hydrogen peroxide or the waterproof them. matches yeah. or, you know what I mean? Or something that an odds and ends that you want to get from we me. Have just write cases to me. and cases of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to mention, we also have a podcast. It's called the survival medicine podcast. And you'll find that on blog talk radio. Awesome. Well guys, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I think, um, I think maybe this is like three times, three or four times for, uh, for you, Dr. Bones. And uh, I really do appreciate everything you do for the Prepper community. Is there any final words you'd like to share? Well, our mission is to put a medically prepared person, every family. I think that in these uncertain times, it's so important to know how to deal with injuries and illness in situations where the ambulance might not be heading in your direction. And that is our mission. And uh, we'll hope to and educate people, put medical supplies in the hands of people that were willing to care for others in times of trouble. Or even today, again, walking to the park or getting in your car, you never know what you're going to come across and, and whose life you might help. Very true. Thank you guys. Appreciate you. Oh, thank you. We do too. And by the way, Todd, again, Todd. I remember your dad. Tell him I said hi. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> God bless. God bless. God bless. All right. Wow. What a great interview and so much great information. Uh, that's one of, This is one of those episodes where you want to sit down with a notepad and jot, jot down some notes and like, hey, this was really great that they said and I want to remember this. And, and then all of the resources that they have available. I mean, I link to all their articles on Prepper website. I mean, that's just a given. But they have so many great videos that if you haven't ever visited their YouTube channel, you'd really need to go check it out. And so a lot of great information over there. And uh, I'll link, like I said in the in the interview, I'll link to their YouTube channel uh, and some of the other links that they mentioned on or in the show notes, uh, so that you can go straight over there and just really make it easy for you. But uh, really do appreciate them. If you don't, I really truly believe that when I say that. If you don't have uh, a medical book, a medical preparedness book, the very first book that you should buy as a prepper or getting into this uh, preparedness mindset is their survival medical handbook. And you really should get that. There's so much great information there. Um, it truly is a great investment. So uh, I'm going to link to that in uh, on the on the website. I can't link to that one on the show notes because it goes directly to Amazon and Amazon doesn't like that. They get all upset and all twisted. So uh, if you want that book, you can always go to the website. I have a direct link to the episode and you can always jump over there. And uh, that way, when you purchase through Amazon or through our link, that's a little bit of a blessing. 
And guys, I mentioned the exclusive email group a couple of times. I'd love for you to be a part of that. It's only $10 a year. It comes down to 0.03 cents a day. A lot of great people over there. Good information that is being shared. And so uh, I welcome you to come on over. Hey, I, I hope that if you're not subscribed to this uh, podcast that you will be subscribed, but I am going to be talking about a new thing that's going to be coming out that I'm very excited about here in the next couple of weeks. So I just want to kind of give you a heads up there. If you're not subscribed, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss that information. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 618. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com or just hit subscribe in your podcast catcher and that way you never miss another episode of sweet prepper goodness and take a moment to connect with me i have a link in the show notes to the prepper website email list and when you subscribe to the email list it's a free subscription but i am going to send you a free pdf of the 25 hand-picked preparedness articles that you should read some of these articles aren't even available on the internet anymore but because i have the link to them because of prepper website I was able to bring them up for you, and so you have uh, you have access to them. So I'd love for you to connect with me that way. And don't forget that there's a ton of other great resources on PrepperWebsite.com. I have all you know. We link to eight to twelve articles every single day, great preparedness information, but we also have pages that are dedicated to alternative news, uh, DIY, frugal living, even Bible prophecy, homesteading. We have it all on the top right-hand corner. Just do the little drop-down menu and you will get it there. Tons of great information for your preparedness if you continue continuously seek to get prepared. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.